Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najeri and Mark Tepper, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight, Tesla's June rally is heating up, and we are just moments away from the company's shareholder meeting. We'll tell you what Elon Musk says is driving the stock. Plus, stocks are within striking distance of their all-time highs, but one top technician says do not trust this rally yet. He'll be here to explain why. But we start off with stocks sitting out this rally. Nearly 50% of the S&P 500 is in a correction or worse, down 10% or more from their highs. Check out some of the biggest names on the list. Intel, UPS, United Health, Exxon, Salesforce, all falling from their 52-week highs. So do you buy any of these names for a catch-up trade? Or are they a no-touch? Pete, where do you start with this list? I think that when I look at that list, I see a couple of names that I already own, and I would probably start adding to very soon just because I think that they've been pushed down enough from those 52-week highs, and I think there's room to the upside. I'd start with Intel, I'd finish with Exxon, and I'd add in UPS. All three of them, when you look at quality companies that are doing things the right way and the execution is there, the fundamentals are there, for me, they've also got growth. When you put that all together, Mel, when they pull back the way they have, I think that's an opportunity. Those are names I'd be adding to. I want to drill down on Intel, Dan. Whoa. What do you think of Intel? Well, here? it's interesting. I mean, you picked one that actually has some very specific issues to their own yeah. execution and sure. also is obviously very involved in what so some of the headwinds are. are. Yeah, right, to the to the macro situation. So that is a very interesting list. I would put UPS in the same thing as far as uh, macro headwinds. Salesforce, we know that they just made this $15 billion acquisition deal. That took that thing down. That thing had actually been trading very well for the better part of this year in a very tight range between, I think, 150 and 165 to the upside. So it is an interesting list. And then, you know, Exxon just, you know, took a leg lower because crude took a leg lower for macro kind of reasons, too. So I think at the end of the day, you got to think about where's the S&P right now. Like you said, it's only a couple percent from those all-time highs, but it really hasn't made any progress in 18 months for all intents and purposes. So when you have underperformance like you do in Intel, you better be prepared to wait for a while unless we have a massive breakout in the market. So Intel is one that I'd be avoiding right now. I think what, what I'm seeing right now is they're losing a lot of market market share to AMD. Uh, and they're really forced right now to compete on price rather than innovation. So I'd, I'd much rather put my money in the companies that are competing on innovation right now. The companies I like right now out of that list, I like Salesforce. And I also like United Healthcare. So I think with United Healthcare, they've been punished uh, under the prospect of potentially there being some Medicare for all plan that, that rolls out next year. And I think that plan is very unlikely. And I think there's definitely some upside with United Healthcare. And with Salesforce, Salesforce is another one that we like quite a bit. I mean, software is just a great area to be. You're looking at high margins, recurring revenues, and they just had a blowout quarter. I mean, they really hit the ball out of the park, and the stock hasn't reacted as positively as it should have. So I like those. So for me, you know, I'm always value-oriented. If I had to be in the semis, probably Intel would be where I'd go, but I don't have a lot of exposure. I did, however, I have Anthem. So, you know, it trades very closely to UNH. And as you said, they were all sort of idiosyncratically hit on the Democrats all coming out in sort of a race to, you know, have single-payer health care. That was an opportunity. I bought some Anthem, uh, oh, decently. I actually sold it. 
uh, sold part of it today. I'm pretty bearish. You know, I really think we have not seen the effects of the trade war take hold yet. We just June 1st have goods landing that are now more expensive. We haven't yet seen those. You know, I have a friend who makes supplies that Home Depot and Ace Hardware and, and Lowe's buy. They've gotten them. They're more expensive. They're about to pass those prices on to consumers. So we haven't seen yet that yet. I'm very concerned about that. So even you know, I'm, uh, even though I'm value oriented, I am not inclined to buy here. The one the one thing I did buy, S and P puts that VIX doesn't go down even with the markets going up. He can speak to that a lot better than I. But I want to own more protection. I don't think all clear signal is right now. I just want to make one point about Salesforce, because I think what you're talking about from a fundamental standpoint, from a secular standpoint, makes total, total sense. But when you think about this stock, in February, in March, in April, it was unable to break out to new highs. And this is one where they just make a $15 billion acquisition, um, about 10% of their market cap for a company that has 10% um, of their sales at 100 times earnings, 10, 11 times sales. To me, that's the sort of thing that could keep a stock like this kind of range bound for much, much longer because I think investors are going to have to digest these massive, massive acquisitions. They bought MuleSoft last year, similar sort of thing. Ultimately, you know, I just don't know how at some point if we have a lower market that investors, when they focus on value, um, that this is a tough one. So I'm, I'm taking a look at this from kind of a different perspective, right? So whenever a company gets acquired, how many CEOs are going to take an all stock deal? I mean, cash is king, right? So I'd want to get some cash. So the fact that Tableau is taking a 100% stock deal, in my opinion, that's a huge vote of confidence that Salesforce is a place that you want to be. I actually take the opposite. I mean, like, so here's a company that, that you know, Salesforce, which, which on a gap basis literally just got profitable like two years ago. They've been public for 15 years. I think that is correct. They are using their currency, which is massively, you know, massively outperformed the NASDAQ in that same 15-year period. And they've just been buying stuff up. They're becoming one of those uh, not-so-really-sexy roll-ups for all intents and purposes. And those are the sorts of things I think you look downstream a few years and you say to yourself, well, you know, the writing was on the wall, I think, a little bit about growth. I, I would just push back a little bit with Karen when she was talking about Home Depot, Lowe's, some of those names, and can they pass along some of that price stuff? I think that they can. I do, too. Oh, okay. That's why I think there's inflation coming, and okay. that scares me. And but I, let's I remember, too, that the February and April were weather-wise as bad as we've seen across the country ever. I mean, it was really, really bad. Mm -hmm. February was cold, had all the different storms. April, a lot of rain and everything else, and very cold. So it really pushed everything back. And that's why I think this springtime slash summer is going to be very big for them. And will people spend? They've been spending other places. It's all been about quality. When we look at who's winning right now in any category, it's quality versus the rest of the guys, right? right. Whether, well, yeah. Whatever that is. To that point, though, we saw that Lowe's stumbled a little bit, right? Yes. They didn't have their pricing right. They had some tariff issues. They didn't get it quite right. Now we have another... They have, an, uh, and, and as does Home Depot, another slew of price increases. I feel like Home Depot can better manage that than Lowe's. I definitely think the management at Home Depot is completely different. I mean, I've traded Lowe's. I've been in Home Depot a lot in terms of an investment, and I would continue to look for them. I haven't seen any option activity that would draw me back into it, Mel. But when I look at Lowe's, I've never really liked the management. I've thought they've misdone things. Uh, they've, they've done things poorly many, many times, mismanaged a lot of different things in terms of storage and everything else. Home Depot, on the other hand, is execution. 
And they're doing it in all different phases, including e-commerce that continues to grow. In thinking about this list of laggards, how should we factor in the trade war and slowing economic growth? I mean, Pete, you like the UPS, for instance. I mean, if you believe that there's a trade war going on and there might be fewer goods moving around the world because of trade wars uh, and slower economic growth, you really want to be in a play like UPS, especially when it's competitor FedEx. I mean, it it can't get out of its own way. Right. Yeah. No, that is obviously a headwind. It's something you have to decide how big is this going to be and when do you think this is actually going to get done? I think there will be a deal. I don't know how long into the future it's going to be, but I think in the meantime, you're sitting there, you got a great dividend yield, the fundamental story is there, and it gives you an opportunity to sell calls against a position like this. You can hold on and be able to be there in case you start to see that move to the upside. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm probably 50-50 that a deal gets done at this point. I mean, China's making some power moves, right? I mean, they're going after Ford, they're going after FedEx. Uh, there's been talk about them possibly banning iPhones. I don't know how true it is. Um, so I'd be sticking with the companies that are more immune to these tariffs and, and the trade war. So, that, again, that's one of the reasons we like software right now. Yeah, Dan, really, if you had your druthers, would you pass on this entire list that we... Yeah, I, I, I think that the, I guess my main point is this, is that the S&P 500 is up 15 percent on the year. It's approaching those prior all time highs. It's been rejected there twice over the last 18 months. And you say to yourself, with all the uncertainty that we have as we head into Q2 reporting season in July, I don't know if you're going to buy laggards. If anything, buy the strong names that just reported strong Q1 results. And you think that they're going to lead the market higher because it's not going to be the laggards. It's not going to be value that leads it higher. It's going to be these names that are actually put up big numbers and people want to crowd. Microsoft's a great example. Microsoft is probably the first mega cap name that made a new high since that uh, since we made that prior high in April. And what did it do? It literally rallied 10% in the last week and a half. So you see those sorts of names are going to power the market higher if we break out. It's not going to be the laggards. It's not going to be laggards. It's not going to be value, Dan says, Karen. Well, I always think it is going to be value. So there, Dan. However, I have to say, I mean, I own UPS. I also own FedEx. Dan has been right on FedEx. I've been wrong there. Some of their trouble, trade-related, but some of it self-inflicted for for sure, UPS trades higher, but I think it's better. Plus, the UPS exposure is more U.S.-centric. It's very U.S.-centric, more so than FedEx. Look at how quick the move has been, though, since oil got to that point where it actually made a little bit of a turnaround. Just in the last couple of weeks. Take a look at ExxonMobil. The thing was trading $70, and all of a sudden it's trading $75. That's a really big move in a short period of time for a massive company. So I don't think you always have to play the momentum. It's all about what is the backdrop right now. Is oil, has it bottomed? Has it actually hit a place that it's got support? It feels like maybe they have. And if that's the case, I think Exxon's got 81 on it very quickly. All right. Well, stocks may may be ripping through June with the S&P 500 up 5%. But our next guest says if you try and chase this rally, look out below. Let's go off the charts with Jason Hunter, J.P. Morgan, head of global fixed income and U.S. equity technical strategy. He's over at the Plasma. Jason, what are you looking at? Oh, yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start with the broad S&P view. So it's a little bit of a good news, bad news situation when we look at the chart. Uh, So we'll start with what's happened. So one, the market traded in this broad pattern that it broke down from in late May which has pretty bearish implications, particularly if you look at the way a lot of the trend-following signals were set at that point in time, a number of moving averages. The market broke down through those at a time where the news story wasn't looking that good, um, which really could have generated a lot of downside momentum. So one, on on the good news front, the fact that the bears weren't able to do a heck of a lot with that, despite the news headlines uh, after the breakdown, and then subsequent move that we've had, five-day sharp rally, taking the market right back through that important 28 100 inflection above the 200-day moving average again. Um, the fact that you put it back in the pattern, normally that would be associated with a good medium-term outlook. It suggests there isn't a lot of weak hands that are ready to panic out of the market. You know, a strong, uh, you know, long that you're seeing in the S&P, and you could generate bullish momentum on that. Now, on the flip side of that, 
Um, you're already back to the 2900 area. Our base case view all along on the technical side uh, for JP Morgan was thinking that 2953,000 probably caps the market going into the third quarter. And we're getting in close proximity to that. And most important, this has been a very headline driven market over the past several months. We have G20 heading, uh, you know, coming up. Uh, the trade stories in focus very much of what's already been talked about on the show. Um, so with the market near 2900 and a number of the cyclically sensitive groups not really performing all that well just yet, uh, things like copper, semiconductors, um, we're less inclined to try and chase the market up here. And we want to see basically the market you know, trade well for a, a few weeks before we um, look at that. Um, you know, so to focus more on uh, cyclically sensitive groups, uh, we're looking at the semiconductor index, the SOX index. It came down in virtual straight line, a gap-filled decline as the trade headline started to turn negative. Yes, we've bounced off of key support, but there's no clear base pattern to post up against as a technician to say for sure that this is bottom. This could still be a bear market bounce for semis. And going into G20, you know, for obvious reasons, you, know, you want to watch and see how the headlines hit before you, you know, try and, and even touch this group. Um, so what we'll watch as we move over the next several weeks is, one, is the S&P going to consolidate and hold above the 2800 level again? Two, watching you know, copper, crude, semiconductors, seeing if those can start to outperform over that period, and likely that's going to be headline-driven. Um, if those things all fall into place, then maybe we have to move our objectives up for the S&P. Maybe 3000 is too conservative for the index. On the flip side, if the headlines go south, you know, one of the things we look at is year-on-year growth for semiconductors. This particular index tends to line up well with global PMI. Global PMI is sitting just above 50 right now on the manufacturing side. To fully reprice semis for that 50-type number, there's still a lot of weakness that can happen here. Um, so we want to wait and see here right now and see how things shape up. Mm-hmm. Concerns about the 10-year yield, Jason, um, had been a damper for the markets uh, last month. And, and you're the person, perfect person to ask because you do technical strategy and you're the head of global fixed income. So where do you see the 10-year yield going? And what do you think this yield is telling us in terms of, I mean, is it is it being driven by uh, forecasts for the economy or forecasts for inflation? I mean, what what's the key driver here? So we'll start with over the near term, uh, we have a number of systematic strategies that we built that help us navigate pivot points uh, for the Treasury market. And the last time I was on the show, the market was trending strongly to lower yields. We were saying, don't stand in front of it yet. We're not in the zone for a number of those indicators before they're set to fire sell signals. Uh, a couple of those sell signals have actually triggered over the last week or so. Um, so tactically, we're actually in a bearish 10-year note position right now. And as you said, that's been a cushion for the market for the first three days of that S&P recovery rally. It was defensive groups like utilities, consumer staples that really benefited from the drop in yields and helped lift the S&P 500. Uh, our view over the near term is now that the 10-year yield stabilizes over the short term. Maybe you get some backing and filling toward 225, 230. But that 230 level is now a big inflection. That's where yields tried to base out in March and again in May. They couldn't hold it, and then they, they sharply you know, dropped to lower levels. That's probably you're going to find a lot of Treasury buyers on a retracement toward that level now. Um, you know, as the expectations of are the trade stories already in the, mar- you know, in the market, does that start to work its way into the economy? Um, you know, individuals that were bearish on rates going into that that maybe started to flip a little bit, looking for opportunities to buy, you're probably going to get a little bit of that as we back up toward the 225 area. All right, Jason, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Jason Hunter of J.P. Morgan. Dan. Seems like a lot of people just want to talk about rates right here. In the 10-year, that 2% was a kind of a level here. And i got to tell you, if it breaks below there for the wrong reasons, I think you're going to see alarm bells go off on risk assets all over the globe here. Because when you think about how much sovereign debt 
outside the U.S. is in negative terri- territory and what that means for their economies. You know, just today, you interviewing Larry Kudlow today, he was talking about Europe. He was talking about, yeah. you know, the problems they have and how slow they have been to kind of stoke inflation, that sort of thing. If we get to a point where we are this far into the recovery, you know, 10 years on, I got to tell you, rates going back in that direction will not be good for the stock market. So what I'm wondering right now is how much of this rally has been a head fake. I mean, there's just so many risk off signals I'm seeing right now. You've got gold outperforming copper. You've got the staples outperforming discretionary. Defensive sectors are leading. Personally, I think we're at a spot right now where the the market's going to trade range bound and sideways for the rest of the year unless and until we actually get a trade deal. Mm -hmm. And you're Mm -hmm. cautious. I am. I mean, this is about as cautious as I get for me. I'm always long, always long. But I am really, really concerned. I think the Fed's in a bit of a box. I don't I think that the market is already pricing in some movement of the Fed down and a likelihood of the trade deal that I I, I don't know. I don't know how you can be that comfortable. I would say and and Karen hit it at the very top of the show. And it's exactly what I would say. I think you can still own this market. you got to buy that put protection that gives you that ability to feel very comfortable about it, Mel. But that gives you all that room to be able to make these trades to the upside as we're doing, regardless of what the reasoning is behind why the market is moving to the upside and whatever the, di- the different rotations are that are moving us to the upside. That's been very strong. And because of that, I think there are opportunities. Every single day we see opportunities in stocks that I think are created by getting oversold. We've seen it out of Apple. We've seen it out of Facebook. We've seen it out of multiple names. And those opportunities are there. And when they are, you can buy that protection right now as cheap as it's been in terms of that 15 to call it 21 if we even get as much as 21, because we haven't been able to break through 20 in quite a while. All right, coming up, check out shares of Beyond Meat having its worst day since going public after one of its lead underwriters waved the white flag as a stock (laughs) dead meat. We've got the details. Plus, breaking up is hard to do. Well, sometimes the top battle says there is one tech giant that might be better off after a split. We'll explain. And later, Tesla revving up ahead of a shareholder meeting, which starts in just moments. Despite a rough start to the year, there's one chart that could point to major gains ahead. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's time for a big buzzkill. Beyond Meat tanking 25% today after lead underwriter J.P. Morgan downgraded the stock to a neutral from overweight, saying the stock is now beyond the price target. The analyst behind the call was on closing bell moments ago. I think what you're going to see is more iterations. In fact, Beyond Meat just came out with a new iteration or announced their iteration today of the Beyond Burger 2.0, which is made with a little bit less pea protein, a little bit more of other ingredients to give it more quote-unquote marbling. That's the kind of R&D that we'll see going forward from them. So yes, if someone wanted to copy the Beyond Burger 1.0, they could, but someone could easily get more advanced and have a better burger going forward. I don't think this is about IP, and I think there's many winners here in the future. Despite today's sell-off, shares of Beyond Meat still up more than 400% since going public last month. But could this be the end of the Beyond Meat boom? Karen. 
Who knows? I mean, Pete and I were talking to the green room before the show. We were checking on a borrow just to see. Yeah. So well over 100 percent, as much as 300 wow. percent for a borrow. Right. So that's, that's just crazy. crazy. So that tells you you're trading in some other realm that has nothing to do with anything but supply demand short dynamic. Then there's the actual valuation which has nothing to do with anything related to, you know, what the ultimate sales are. I totally believe in the space. There, I think that we're going to see lots of competition. It's not that there aren't other competitors. It's that there are no other shares available, right, right. of any public alt, competitor. Alt meat competitor. Alt, so I, I don't good for the analyst for, for, for issuing a buy when the stock was 86 and then reiterating. That was three, seven days ago right, now right. and then four days ago. So good for him. Good for him for, for taking that buy recommendation off. Nice job trading it. This, this is insanity. Yeah. Price target's still 120, by the way. Nailed it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Listen, we've seen this a little bit in this uh, new IPO season that we've been in, and the ones that actually have um, you know large shares outstanding but a very small float. Share it just gets really high very quickly. It becomes a supply-demand um, thing. I think the fever probably broke. If you think about what just happened into earnings, I think a lot of investors wanted to make sure that the story that they told on the roadshow was fairly consistent. It was, and it was better. But now, you know, you sucked everybody in who's just kind of been waiting to get in here. So I think you probably have this thing back probably to a level back below 100 where the I think the analyst community kind of wants it so they can start doing their work on it again because right now it's out of whack. I, I agree. I mean, I love the health and wellness theme. I just I'm not sure it's this company and definitely not at this valuation. First of all, I don't like to eat fake anything. right? So I prefer my beef burgers over this uh, any day of the week. Um, and now, with the, with the valuation where it's at right now, we just saw one analyst downgrade. We're going to see several more over the course of the next few weeks to a few months, and that's not good for any stock's price. So uh, I, I think the stock's going to suffer. And you who's know, the underwriter of this? J.P. Morgan. Right. Morgan. Right. Morgan. Morgan. I mean, that says it all to me right there. They were the lead, under- though. They, were, no, they, were, they weren't the lead. They're amongst the lead. They're amongst the lead. They're amongst the lead. driving the price. Yeah. 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 And, well, hold on. Well, why is that a problem? Well, I mean, no, it's, it's not a problem. It, I mean, it's, it's, they're being transparent. They're showing a level of credibility. I the stock is up 500%. And they probably know it as more. They know it as probably as well as anybody. That's my whole point. So the fact that he brings this thing, to he pulls back. Yeah. Goes to the level where he is in terms of the rating, and 120 is the tri- price target. I think that says a lot about what okay. they really think. This is a $99 stock the day of earnings that suddenly goes to 183 and then back to 125. I mean, it's really, really interesting to see the movement we've had out of this stock. Yeah. But I got to tell you, what, when you say valuation or whoever brought it up, what do you mean valuation? What is the valuation? Yeah, right. Is there a valuation? Yeah. I don't well, know. I don't like the way the analyst talked about the, I mean. talked about the 2.0 burger, less pro- pea protein and more fake marbling. Well, listen, they just very attractive. I think you have to think about it this way. This is a $7.5 billion market cap company, which is really a, which is really an R&D factory, right, for this, like, whatever this trend is going to be going forward. So if this was a part of a big food company, it would be their other bets, how Alphabet likes to right. call it or something like that, and we wouldn't be spending a lot of time talking about it. One day we'd wake up and say, oh, there's some of the parts of this thing, you know, that they should spend it out, unlock shareholder value or something like that. But right now, it's just a crazy trading vehicle. All right. For more on Beyond Meat, go to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. First in business worldwide. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. Breaking up is hard to do. Yes, it is. But a top analyst thinks there's one big tech giant that might be better off broken up. We'll tell you the name. Plus... That's what Wall Street looked like after seeing one of the most frightening charts in the market. We'll tell you what it is and why it has investors running scared. 
There's much more Fast Money after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back to Fast Money. The calls for breaking up big tech are getting louder as the House Judiciary Committee is launching an investigation into Silicon Valley's former tech darlings. The fears are front and center at the code conference going on right now. Take a listen to the head of Instagram. If we split it up, it might make a lot of my life easier, uh, <laughs> and it would probably be very beneficial for me as an individual, but I just think it's a terrible idea. I think it, it depends on what problem you're trying to solve. If you're trying to solve election integrity, if you're trying to you know, approach issue, content issues like hate speech, um, and you split us up, it would just be, make it exponentially more difficult, particularly for us on Instagram, to keep people safe. Right now, there are more people who work on integrity and safety issues at Facebook than anybody who works on Instagram. And YouTube CEO warning that heavy-handed regulation may, uh, what heavy-handed regulation may do to the company. I think what we have seen is that a lot of times regulation is really well intended. People want to you know, change society for the better, but it has all these unintended consequences. And so the, 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 what I would say is really important is for us to be able to, to work closely with these different providers, um, the different governments, and be able to explain you know, how, to, how can we really implement it in a reasonable way, how to make sure there aren't unintended consequences that they didn't think about. Well, breaking up may be hard to do, but one analyst says that is not the case for Alphabet. That brings us to our call of the day. And no doubt by Needham says the tech giant is too cheap right now, and the stock could actually surge 50% if the government stepped in and forced it to break up. So is big tech maybe better off splitting up? Dan. Well, I think big tech you know, knows that the genie is out of a bottle. For all those issues they just talked about, what do you want to regulate? Are you trying to kind of secure our election system, that sort of thing? Those are two separate issues. But if you kind of regulate and, and break up these companies, the sum of the parts, I think this is what this analyst is saying, might be worth them what they are. And it's going to really stifle innovation. I think some of the smartest tech investors will all line up and tell you that if you do that, then basically these companies are just going to start buying little or you know, smaller companies. They're going to be, once again, trillion dollar market cap companies with huge huge moat. So at the end of the day, I'm not sure what breaking them up really does. And I think it probably makes it harder. It makes a lot more entities that have to be um, kind of, you know, at least watched by the government. Do you think so, Alphabet would gain value if it broke I do. Up? I mean, well, for one thing, the, the ridiculous pile of cash would be completely naked, right? So they have to do something with that. Maybe right. they distribute it among those companies. But also, I mean, <coughs> who knows what YouTube would get, Right. Who knows? Who knows what Waymo would get if you look at Cruise or, or you know, I, I think, yes, it definitely, to your point, your point is a different one is on whether or not it stifles competition. 
I'm just looking at it as a shareholder, I think it would unlock value. Right. But when you look across big tech and the big tech that's under fire, not every company can break up so easily, I would imagine. I mean, right. an Apple, I would think, would be much harder to break up in terms of the services business and the hardware business because they feed off each other. Maybe Facebook the same way, perhaps because of the platform that ad buyers buy into. I'm, I'm not sure. What do you think? No, I, I agree. I mean, Apple has such a strong ecosystem. You really you have to keep that company together. But when we're talking about, um, you know, the, the sum of parts valuations and, and how if you strip, strip out uh, all the different parts of Google, it becomes worth more. What they're not taking into consideration is the synergies that exist from being one company, right? So as soon as you start stripping out the different businesses and applying a higher multiple to them, essentially you have to subtract out the synergies then as well. So but, is it but, really but worth any more? The, right, they're already, they have their whole pile of money losing debts that's already mixed in, right? So you, you have actually a, I think you have a subdued multiple versus what you would have. Because of the moonshots. Yes. Yeah. The incredible thing for Facebook is they've got the money. We know they have the money. All these companies have incredible cash hoards, right? But they went out there, and Mark Zuckerberg, they've already taken the hit from when he said, and I remember sitting on the desk with you, Mel, the night that they decided how much money they were going to spend to put themselves in a position to be able to, from a regulatory standpoint. So I think it's really interesting that they've got the money to do it. If you spun out an Instagram, I think that the valuation there would be far higher than people would ever guess when you do this some of the parts sort of a deal. But it's still this company that's got this incredible moat. So how do you, what do you really want to do with these companies? And are they really using what they've got against everybody else? Or does the competition just have to get better? Yeah, let me, let me make one other point about Facebook. When you think about their earnings growth and what's happened since July of last year, we know that earnings were expected at that point. A year ago, earnings were expected to grow, what, 20 30% or something year over year on 25 30% sales growth. What's happened? Sales are still expected to grow 25% in 2019, but earnings are actually expected to decline year over year. So what has happened? They've guided down. That was one of the reasons why the stock cratered in the second half of last year. Analysts have taken their estimates down. They have started spending money to kind of get more in line what they think the future looks like here. And at some point, this stock trading at 20 times, if, if whatever regulatory action comes out and they're already prepared for it, this thing could be a moonshot to the upside. I'm just saying on valuation. Was be wor- that I'm sorry, not the, the net, uh, pre-tax margin was going to be worse than it actually is going to be, that the SGA is actually it- coming in. It Better. clearly could. Do. What, what did we see earlier this year when they grinded expenses lower than what people expected? The stock right. rallied 15 percent in a straight line. So I think investors are getting to the point where they think that estimates are probably low enough for what is likely to come down the pike as far as regulation, what this company has to do. And, and we've been saying this. And I know Tim used to write all these op-eds last year, <laughs> writing op-eds left and right. It's coming for Google, and that's one of the reasons why Google is really underperforming right now. It's a timing game, so ultimately I think estimates are probably going to have to come down for your and Tim's Google. Coming up, Grubhub heating up today after Amazon announced it was dropping out of the food delivery wars. Will it serve up even more gains? Plus, Tesla CEO Elon Musk expected to begin speaking at the company's shareholder meeting at any moment. We'll bring you all the headlines as they break. More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla shareholder meeting kicking off moments ago with CEO Elon Musk set to take the stage any second now. Phil Lebeau is here to tell us the most important things to watch. Hey, Phil. 
Hey, Melissa, Robin Denholm, who is the chairman of Tesla, is currently talking with uh, shareholders right now at the meeting. We expect to hear from Elon Musk momentarily. The big question is, does he address some of the big topics that are out there right now? And there are really three of them in terms of what people want to hear about from Elon Musk. First of all, what's the latest with autopilot development? Remember, he said just a month and a half ago, hey, we're going to have a million robotaxis out on the road by next year. A lot of people gave him criticism for that. Uh, will he talk about that, whether or not that plan's updated, what's going on with the Model Y, and finally, any kind of guidance in terms of Q2 deliveries. Now, he may not say anything at all. You never know with this investor meeting because sometimes you get a very chatty Elon Musk. Sometimes you don't get much out of Elon Musk. So we're going to hop on to uh, watching this uh, shareholder event. We'll let you know if he says anything that is significant or if it's one of those days where Elon's kind of quiet. Musk has already commented, though, Phil, on, on Q2 deliveries, correct? In, in this sort of the leaked email a couple yeah. weeks ago. <laughs> Gee, these emails are they coming seem to out now. Come out and help the stock at opportune times. But the email right, basically right. said record deliveries, right? Record deliveries in terms of, and I'm trying to remember exactly if it was for the month of May, um, but in terms of their cadence and what they're expecting. So we don't know much about what to, where they are as they start the month of June, aside from what we can extrapolate out of that email. Uh, about record deliveries and whether or not that portends that this is the ramp up that he's been talking about. Um, remember, we've been down this road before, Melissa, where they indicate that things are improving, that they have uh, deliveries that are ramping up, and then the numbers come out, and it's not what they indicated or what many people extrapolated out of their emails. All right. Well, if Elon says anything juicy, Phil, keep us posted. Phil Lebeau in we Chicago. Uh, well, Tesla stock is rallying this week, but it is still down 35% this year. Our next guest says this action reminds him of another big tech stock that ended up making a monster comeback, Netflix. Joining us now is Eddie Yoon, founder of Eddie Would Grow LLC and the author of Super Consumers, A Simple, Speedy, and Sustainable Path to Superior Growth. So, Eddie, what made you think of Netflix? Well, uh, back in 2011, Netflix had a very similar problem as uh, Tesla is having now. So they announced a big price increase. They had some uh, changes to the product when they were going to strip out uh, DVDs by mail and streaming. And there was a big reaction. Uh, they lost 800,000 subscribers on a base of 23, 24 million. The stock tanked 80%. It took them two years to recover. But since then, they've gone from about 20 uh, plus million subscribers to 150 million. And I think what you see is the same phenomenon of kind of irrespective of what the quarter to quarter numbers say, that the category itself has a huge tailwind behind it. So just as I, when I looked at the uh, streaming opportunity back then, what I saw was that the exponential opportunity for streaming writ large was much, much bigger. So regardless of what happened quarter to quarter, and I see the same thing for electric vehicles. Uh, it's about 2% of the market now, probably has a tailwind to get to about 20%. So, and 60% of a brand's growth comes from the category tailwind. And so given that, uh, I think the long-term demand is not really an issue here. Are there places where your comparison, you believe, sort of falls short? And, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if Netflix faced the same sort of scrutiny in terms of whether or not demand was there for the product that Tesla faces or the concern about cash burn, the a huge concern that Tesla faces right now. Yeah, no, I, I think that clearly streaming and cars, one would think that they're wildly different categories. But at the same time, if you actually remember back to what Netflix was like 2011, original content was not there. Emmys and awards were not there just yet, right? It was kind of 
B and C level content that they were streaming, and it was kind of a subpar offering there. They continually improved the product. They uh, were able to take pricing, and that's what I felt like was a virtuous cycle that I see there too. And that importantly, uh, the part about Netflix that I thought was really quite interesting was who they were competing against. They were actually competing against boredom. So you know, work for eight hours, you sleep for eight hours, you got a whole other set That's of- That's an easy win for Netflix. Easy win for that. And that net, uh, for Tesla, the same phenomenon is going on is their competition is really against compromise because you kind of have, I've studied consumers for 20 years. You have two types of consumers when it comes to the car category, people who buy fun cars and people who buy functional cars. And never the two should ever mix beforehand. Now with Tesla, you don't have to choose between what's going on there. And what I'm actually seeing is that from my data, uh, the bulk of people who are buying Teslas today are not necessarily luxury car owners before. Uh, some of them are Prius owners. That's been going up quite a bit. And actually, what you see is that uh, Prius sales have dropped precipitously in the last four years. They were about 180,000 in terms of annual sales in the U.S. four years ago. Now they're about half that. And if you actually calculate the sum total loss that uh, Prius has had over that four-year time period, magically and coincidentally, it's the same amount that Tesla has grown by. So you got that demand that's out there. You have the secondary demand, which is that, uh, by my analysis, that uh, the majority of people who own Honda Accords and Toyota Camrys want a Tesla mm -hmm. and can afford to pay either a $60,000 upfront cash payment and or $1,000 per month uh, monthly payment. I mean, the vast majority of the cars are leased or financed. And so the demand is coming from unexpected places, and that's right. the part that people are missing. So just the bottom line, it obviously... You think the Tesla may have a rough year or two years ahead, but then eventually to the moon? Yeah, I mean, as you saw with Netflix. When, when you judge a, a growing category that's being created on a quarter to quarter basis, it's kind of like driving a car through the lens of a microscope looking backwards, right? I mean, it's not really helpful. When you look at, say, uh, all of our children and their grandchildren, will there be 10x more or a tenth fewer electric cars? It's going to be the former answer. And that with that in mind, that tailwind is pretty uh, insurmountable there. Eddie, great to have you with us. Hope you come by again soon. Thank you very much. Eddie Yoon. Um, Peter Jarian, what do you think of Eddie's analysis? You know, I think a lot of it makes sense. We had a chance to talk earlier, and we were talking about a lot of the different uh, variables that are going on here and the comparisons with Netflix as well. And Netflix is one of those names where I, I continue to be bullish on. Tesla is a crazy name that we all know. It's almost impossible to get your arms around because of all the tweets, everything else that's going on there. But I will tell you this. There was some monster buying. Dan and I are always looking at the options world. It's very, very clear. June 4th, 10,000 of the August 250 calls were bought for over $2. That's a real trade. That was somebody putting down money saying, you know what? There is some form of recovery. Stock was trading 180 mil. Now here it is up almost $30 from that point. So I'm looking at this. I, I bought along with those calls. This is a trade. This is not something where I think long term, I think Tesla is going to scream right back to 400. But I do think this thing gets in those ranges. Right. Guy talks about the ranges all the time where support is. I think right now we're on this upward swing. I think we do hit 250. You'd mentioned that trade before. It's saying that it was very unusual to see this sort of action. Well, no, that, there was some, that was a different trade. But, oh. you know, listen, I'll just say this. I actually, that was a really succinct kind of comparison. I don't think it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense to me. I mean, if you think about the, the pie that the EVs have grown over the last four years, I would be very skeptical if Tesla has picked up uh, the Prius buyer on the average Prius is like 27 grand or something like that. Tesla's lowest end is this new Model 3 that we know is comes at like 55 Gs or something like that. So obviously there's but more. But those numbers were pretty clear. 
I mean, no, they're not. The, the pie has grown, and, and so Prius is selling less, but how many is Chevy Bolt selling more? I, it, that, that, I, I mean, I'm just not. saying this is not a great reflection. I just don't think that you're having a Prius buyer going up and buying a Model S or a Model X or a 3. So, so here's the big difference between Netflix and Tesla as I see it. So back in 2011, uh, Netflix had a market cap of $10 billion. They had $200 million of debt, and they had total debt to EBITDA of 0.5. Right now, you have Tesla at about $38 billion. They've got almost $12 billion of debt, and the total debt to EBITDA is almost 8.0. So Netflix was able to make a mistake here and there. Tesla can't afford to make a mistake. Totally. I mean, they got to hit a home run every time they step up to the plate. Stay tuned. We'll give you uh, more on Tesla throughout the rest of the show as CEO Elon Musk gets ready to take the stage at that company shareholder meeting. Still ahead, the S&P up 5% this month, still hovering near all-time highs, but there is something lurking beneath the surface that could signal more pain. We will explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amazon officially taking its name out of the food delivery race as competition in the space heats up. Let's get to Deidre Bosa in San Francisco with all the details. Deidre. Melissa, even Amazon fails sometimes. Four years after the company entered the food delivery space, it is bowing out. And this chart tells you almost everything you need to know. This is a market dominated by a few big players trying to claw share from each other. According to Second Measure, a research firm that analyzes debit and credit card purchases, Grubhub has nearly a third of the U.S. market, followed by DoorDash, then Uber Eats, and Postmates. Amazon Restaurants is grouped into the remaining 7%, barely making a a dent in the landscape. Now, the others have been far more aggressive in signing up big restaurant chains. DoorDash has Wendy's and Chipotle. Uber Eats has McDonald's and Starbucks. Grubhub has Taco Bell and KFC. Now, this is also a cutthroat market where few customers are loyal to a single service. So it is usually better for the restaurants to boost their sales than it is for the food delivery companies who are accepting smaller and smaller cuts to entice restaurants to sell through them and not one of their competitors. But they're able to do so because investors are betting on the decline of at-home cooking and they're putting billions of dollars into the space. Amazon has other food delivery initiatives that require capital, like its big grocery push. Delivery of Whole Foods is now available in nearly 90 cities. The company also recently made a bet on British food delivery company Deliveroo, leading a $575 million funding round. So guys, while this is a rare retreat for Amazon, it may also be an acknowledgement that it's not ready to make its own big bet on another largely unprofitable business. Back over to you, Melissa. All right, Deidre, thank you, Deidre Bosa. So which of these names will be the real winner of the delivery wars? Mark. I want to take Grubhub because Grubhub, in my opinion, is the pure play, right? Uber is obviously doing a bunch of different things. Um, you know, the runway is, is very long. They have the ability to continue to build in tier one cities, expand to tier two and tier three. Um, the valuation for Grubhub is extremely attractive, and we really believe in the long-term story. I mean, uh, they've had two great quarters in a row. They're running five times as many commercials now as they were a year ago, and they're really reaping the benefits of doing that. I got to think it's the consumer, right? You got five companies. Five of them have a lot of money. The DoorDash, the Postmates, they all have a lot of money. Uber Eats has really laid this out as part of central to their to the core of their business going forward, this is going to be a really competitive market for a while, and the consumer is going to win. You know? Right. 
Which means so, companies are not going to make much money. Which, which will survive. Right. Which right. Jeff Bezos, his, his motto was, your margin's my opportunity. He does not see a margin in a market where it's going to be obviously subsidized by VCs, right now pu- subsidized by a lot of public investors. Um, I think it's actually a smart move for Amazon not to be in business like this. Still ahead, stocks near record highs, but is the market's fear gauge telling a different story? We've got the details. We're live at the NASDAQ and Times Square. More Fast Money coming up. Welcome back to Fast Money. As stocks have rallied to within reach of all-time highs, the volatility has crept its way back into the market. But even though the VIX is still heading higher, is Wall Street's fear gauge really something to be afraid of? Mike Coe's in San Francisco to break down the options action. Mike, what do you say? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, generally speaking, when the market rises, we will typically see the VIX index, which is a measure of implied volatility in the market, fall. We have seen some situations recently where the market has risen a little bit and the VIX has also gone up. Is that a cause for concern? I mean, I think what we need to do is put things in some context here. The long-term average for the VIX going back to 1990 is about 19.2. So far this year, the average has been about 16. So when we see it above 16, that might give us the perception that it's kind of elevated. But what does that actually mean for returns? If you look back over the course of the last 30 years or so, when the VIX was between 16 and 20, the four-week return for the S&P has been about 76 basis points, 0.76%. And that's significantly higher, actually, than the level that you typically see over four weeks when it's lower than 16. So actually, sometimes when we have this slightly higher implied volatility, returns over the ensuing month or so can actually be higher. And that might make some sense to us. The reason for that is that when the market is less complacent, you might have situations where you have these short-term oversold conditions and the market can bounce back. So actually having a VIX level around here, having volatility around here, might actually be healthier than not for the market. Yeah, I would just say that one thing that the um, a lot of the activity in the options market today in the VIX were July calls, the two most active strikes. And when you think about them, they're kind of dollar cheap in a way. And what are they looking at? They're looking at some of the things we were talking about earlier in the show. We have this uncertainty about this G20 meeting mm-hmm. at the end of June. And therefore, that could be the next real catalyst that could kind of spike volatility. Yeah, I think, first of all, let's not call it the fear index. Let's just call it the index that actually measures what movement should be. So 16 tells us 1%. Mm-hmm. That says it all. That's about the movement we're getting each and every day, whether it's up, down, or if you look at the intraday, it's even bigger than that. So 16 is still cheap. Well, ser- serious mansplaining on the VIX there, dude. Why mansplaining? Well, you're just telling them what we should be calling it. You know, you're a father of daughters. You don't talk to the ladies like that. Hey, man, well, we I think he's talking call to America America like that. I'm not afraid of it. Karen? Yeah. Um, no, I understood every word that Pete was saying. Um, <laughs> no, but, you know, Pete and I talk about this a lot. I I, I liked, the, I get Mike's analysis saying, actually, when it's up here, we might have a little bit higher right. outperformance. But if you are long-oriented, you have to be long, and I'm always long, I am, I am nervous about this market. So I want to own that protection. I think it's worth it. All right. For more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Tesla CEO Elon Musk just taking the stage moments ago at the company's shareholder meeting. Here's the headline that's moving the stock in the after-hour session. Musk said there is no demand problem for Tesla, and the stock is up almost 2% in the after-hours. This is one to watch throughout this evening to see how this stock trades tomorrow morning. In the meantime, time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Well, isn't that ironic? Because Dan and I got opposing sides of this thing, but an old Eddie Yoon over here sitting next to me. 
Tesla. Giddy up, this thing's going to 230. Here we go. Mark Tepper. Palo Alto Networks. So cybersecurity is not going anywhere. They had a great quarter, in my opinion. The stock shouldn't be trading down, so we're buying it. Chairwoman. Yes, S&P puts. I think you got to own if you want to stay on. Also, Kate and William, my twins, graduating tomorrow. Aww. The Royal, Aww. we call them. Whoa. Congratulations, guys. Congratulations. Go Lions. Go Lions. Go Lions. Um, we're not really on the same page. I mean, as far as we Tesla, are not on I, the same. I, I That's think, a shocker. No, no, right? I, I think if Tesla gets to 230, 240, it becomes the short of the century. Carter Worth laid it out for us on June 3rd. Yeah. That does for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 more Fast Money. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.